welcome again, everyone, to Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. If uh, you want them to keep coming and you can offer any support, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining, and the link should be in the description. So I've been lecturing for a couple of months now on various topics in the Middle Ages. And this one won't necessarily be the last, but it'll probably be the concluding one for the time being. I might go back to medieval topics uh, later, but I'm going to sort of put uh, a cap for now on this series with a lecture on the, the medieval worldview. Okay, how did medieval people make sense and order out of the world they lived in, which was very fragmented, very decentralized, uh, changing, moving, shifting? How did uh, medievals make a coherent picture of the world and the universe they lived in? So I'm going to go back to and... Uh, draw again on a lot of ideas and subjects that I've already touched on before, but I won't just repeat things that you already know, but I'm going to try to uh, weave together a kind of coherent picture for us to understand how the Middle Ages worked differently and how medieval people thought differently from, from us in the past 500 years, really. So modern historians have sometimes used this phrase in talking about how medieval people reasoned and made judgments. They use this phrase, the presumptive authority of the past. So basically, uh, in the medieval mentality, when you had to make a decision about what was true or what was good, the past took priority all other things being equal. If someone in the past had said something or done something and they were considered a reasonably trustworthy authority or a smart person, then their direction should be followed. This is, of course, a huge generalization to make about an entire complicated thousand years of history, but by and large, it tends to be true. Medieval people valued the authority of the past, and they valued continuity and stability, okay? Today, we like to think we're innovative, right? We're innovators, we're disruptors. It's cool to disrupt things. Disrupting things was not cool, <laughs> according to most people most of the time in the Middle Ages. Disruption was the easy thing to do, okay? It was easy to uh, wander around and raid and pillage and steal. Uh, it was easy to overthrow or undermine governments, creating stability, something that would last, was the real challenge. And people put great stock in practices, institutions that could last. They celebrated as heroes people like Saint Benedict or Hugh de Payen or Bernard of Clairvaux, whom I've mentioned before, who created institutions with missions and rules that could stand the test of time, okay? 
And all this mentality really makes a lot of sense when you consider the experience of the early Middle Ages, of this extreme breakdown and fragmentation in a world where you still had a fairly recent memory of institutions falling apart, cities being abandoned, uh, armies being disbanded and turning into pirates. Uh, in this kind of, uh, in the wake of that kind of experience, it made sense to see uh, stability and cohesion as the real prize to be won. Progress was not uh, a very commonly held or commonly celebrated ideal. Growth, uh, I'll talk about all of these things more, but the, the, real, uh, the real prize was stability, cohesion, continuity. As I've said before, the medieval West, even in the high Middle Ages, which was comparatively more urban and commercial and prosperous, even in the high Middle Ages, the late medieval, the, the medieval West was overwhelmingly rural and agrarian. And this ideal of creating stability and continuity was pursued and realized starting on the everyday level where most people actually lived and worked, which was as peasants or freeholders in rural agrarian environments. And it uh, was embodied in practices and institutions that built their way upward into cities, kingdoms, the church, and so forth. And so in addition to this presumptive authority of the past, the medieval world also had a sort of fractal quality, which is a, a term that other historians have used for, for China. But it was also, I think, true to a great degree of medieval society. It had a fractal quality. There were patterns of organization that you could see on the small scale that then were repeated and replicated in this ever-growing hierarchy up to the scale of kingdoms and empires. Right, so it was it was not just a, a simple pyramid, but it was a kind of self-recreating, self-repeating uh, kind of geometric pattern from the small scale to the bigger scale, and the relationship of a peasant to his landlord was not entirely unlike the relationship of, say, a major noble like a duke to a king or an emperor. Um, and this fractal quality, like, as like in China, this, this fractally organized society has a great resilience. It's able to preserve itself and recreate itself even in the midst of disruptions like wars or famines. Uh, the basic relationships can always be sort of reconstituted and reinvented uh, as you go. So it's a way of organizing society that can stand up against the kind of chaos of events like you see in the early Middle Ages. So let's start out at that local rural agrarian level. How did people live their lives in accordance with the medieval worldview? Well, firstly, people were organized into households. Okay, 
uh, and households tended by and large in Northern Europe to be uh, nuclear, what we would call nuclear families, uh, a head of household, presumably a man, uh, his wife, and children. And if the man was dead, sometimes the widow also could be uh, a householder or head of household. Men and their wives were understood to be cooperative partners, but the man was the senior partner who had final authority within the household. This authority was buttressed by the custom called house peace, which was common in England and also other parts of Northern Europe. Uh, this was the principle that a householder and his family had exclusive authority over the house itself. And sometimes the boundary was considered to be the line around the house where rain would fall as it ran off the roof. So that was, that was sort of like a, an invisible boundary that no one else could cross without the permission of the head of household or whoever was the senior person uh, there at the time. So royal officials, uh, church officials, uh, neighbor, neighborhood rivals uh, couldn't just barge in. Uh, the, the, the presumption was that the house was, was the exclusive domain of the people who lived there. And this basic principle we can see then repeated in different ways on larger scales. So most homes where people lived were usually part of a larger cluster of homes, uh, which might be a village or a hamlet or sometimes a manor that would be centered around a certain uh, nobleman's manor house. Uh, and likewise, that village or hamlet or manor would also have a visible or invisible boundary around it. Maybe a low wall or maybe just uh, an imaginary boundary. And the people of that village or hamlet had the power to decide who could enter. Okay, if strangers came in, the people of the village had the right to kick them out. And this sometimes happened like in times of economic stress when you had a lot of vagrants looking for money, looking for work, uh, they might come into villages and those villages could choose to accept them or expel them. And likewise on up the scale where several villages or towns might be part of a ducal domain uh, which would have some power to decide who could enter. You know, neighboring nobles couldn't just uh, march into your domain without your permission, at least not properly speaking and so on up to the scale of the kingdom or the empire. So the, even the large-scale organization of society, of a kingdom like France or Castile, could be understood as a kind of a giant household, uh, a, a grouping of somehow socially related people that had a, at least a titular head that might be a, a, you know, a duke or a king or an emperor, and that had some right to decide uh, how to govern itself and 
who was allowed in and, and who was not. Uh, this was an age before what we would call the modern state. There was no single centralized authority that set laws for an entire chunk of territory, right? So if you, if you go to modern Britain, say, uh, wherever you are, you are equally subject to the sovereign power of the king in parliament. Uh, in the Middle Ages, each place would have its own local authority structure that somehow fit in this fractal pattern into a bigger authority structure that fit into yet a larger one until you had a kingdom or an empire. And in the view of the church, all of these various ki uh, kingdoms and empires also were part of the larger fold of Western Christendom, which was ultimately governed by the Pope. Now, not everyone agreed exactly with that doctrine, but that was the church's ideal, was that the one authority above them all was, was the Pope. Now, because of both social practices and beliefs and because of technological conditions, authority grew weaker as you went up the scale, okay? It was easiest for people close to you who could see you and hear you and watch you from day to day. It was easier for them to govern you and to enforce laws and practices on you than it was for more distant authorities. So the real... Uh, authority of society was, was still mainly local. And as you moved up the pyramid, it became more and more tenuous, right? So that's why this, this fractal and pyramidal quality of society was so important. If someone came in and knocked off the head, uh, you know, did away with a king or an emperor, it didn't mean that society at the local level stopped functioning because that's where most of the real power and organization was anyway, was at this local level. Households, of course, were formed through courtship and marriage. Uh, medievals tended to have long periods of, of courtship. They didn't get married at 13. That was not common. Uh, for one thing, women, because they had less fat in their diet, tended not to mature and experience menstruation until later than modern-day women. So it was, it was quite normal for a woman to not even be of childbearing age until she was 15, 16. There would then usually be uh, practices of courtship, which might involve what we would call you know, heavy petting or foreplay. Uh, certain uh, festivals and holidays like May Day often involved uh, sexual foreplay or just uh, all-out sex. There was also all kinds of illicit sex, as I said before, in, in churches, stables, places like this. And uh, technically sex before marriage was taboo, but it went on all the time and everybody sort of knew it. Uh, it was just generally understood that if in the process a young woman became pregnant, that then the couple should marry. But short of that, it went on all the time. It was basically tolerated. And people tended to marry in their 20s, sometimes even their, their late 20s. And uh, by that time, they ought to have some resources to be able to set up a household of their own. They might get a small plot of land. Uh, they might build their own house. And again, in Northern Europe, it was more common for these new couples and their new nuclear families to sort of hive off 
and form their own separate homes, whereas in Southern Europe, it was more common for large extended families to remain uh, under one roof. Medievals tended to have a lot of children, but not all of them grew to adulthood. And practices of inheritance were very different in different places. Uh, what we tend to know in the English-speaking world is what's called agnatic primogeniture. Uh, that's where a family's estate or property, whatever it might be, was kept intact and the claim to inherit it would go exclusively to the eldest son. Okay, that's that's the normal practice. Uh, it's 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 a practice that favors keeping estates together, but it tends to produce a lot of younger sons and daughters, who then don't have much of anything to do and basically have to get up and leave and seek their fortune somewhere else. So it produces a lot of unattached, mobile people, but it keeps estates together. Uh, by contrast, in France and many other parts of continental Europe, the practice was to divide up estates evenly among all sons. And you might remember in the lecture about the Dark Ages, I talked about how this is part of why Charlemagne's empire broke up, was that Charlemagne, Charlemagne's three grandsons divided the empire up among the three of them. And they didn't all uh, succeed equally. Uh, if you look at a map of properties in an old part of France or French colonies like Quebec or Louisiana, you tend to see lots and lots of long, narrow lots, sometimes practically razor thin. And the reason is because if you have a bunch of properties lined up along a road or a river, and then over time you divide those properties up among the sons, you have to split them into continually smaller and smaller slices. So uh, inheritance, the different inheritance practices tended to shape how property and also how political power got distributed uh, over time. And again, you see this sort of fractal quality where the, the practice of how you divide up property among your children, even just as a peasant, is then mimicked in the way entire kingdoms or empires are divided up politically, right? Authority and power was personal. It was not based on impersonal, abstract principles, okay? None of these kingdoms had written constitutions. Uh, they had inherited customs and precedents which defined what particular people could exercise what sort of powers. And it was, it was the authority of a particular person, a duke, a, a count, a king or queen, a bishop. It was the particular role that they fulfilled that gave them power. Okay, so, so as I said, uh, households could be grouped into villages, uh, sometimes also, such as in England, into other more formally regularized units called hundreds, where you would put together roughly a hundred uh, households who then should appoint leaders and be ready uh, to prepare to form a militia and defend the territory and so forth. Uh, larger than that, you would have parishes, each one centered on a certain uh, 
church with a priest. Those parishes could have institutions within them, such as guilds or religious confraternities that would organize people within the parish, and then the parishes would fit, in, of course, uh, into larger church units, uh, dioceses, and also into larger uh, non-church power uh, units of power and authority, such as estates, uh, realms, kingdoms. The people of this rural medieval society were mostly peasants, which basically just means people who have control over a small portion of land, which they might hold on all sorts of different terms. A small portion were freeholders, meaning they had the exclusive right to occupy and exploit a piece of land. More of them were tenants of one sort or another who would have to pay rent either in money or in crops or in services to a landlord who is usually a noble. And of those, uh, and also a small portion were serfs, meaning that they were legally required to live on and work a certain piece of land, but they didn't have a title to it. They were basically like slaves, only instead of being uh, bought and sold as commodities among owners, instead they were tied to a piece of land and required to work for the lord of that land. Uh, as I said before, serfdom did happen. It was fairly widespread in the Middle Ages, but most peasants were not serfs, and it was not as common as it would become later in the early modern era, specifically in Eastern Europe. So it was really Eastern Europe in the 15, 16, 1700s. That was kind of the, the heyday of serfdom. So people held portions of land on all sorts of different terms and understandings. And those terms of land tenure were usually not written down Rather, they were set by custom and precedent. So you might have a piece of land that you held on the understanding that you would give to the lord of that domain, say, one-tenth of your crop each year. That, that might be one land tenure arrangement. You would owe that to the lord because that's what the previous occupants of that land had done. That was the precedent, right? And it was passed down from generation to generation orally, usually not in writing. And again, the presumptive authority of the past. If this was what previous generations had done, then it was understood that you should continue it. And if anyone tried to change those terms, it caused huge conflict and controversy. So there were many peasant rebellions, especially in the 1400s, where lords were accused of rack renting, which simp all that rack renting meant was raising the rent, right? Lords were not understood to have a right to raise the rent. If the rent had been a certain level in ages past, then that should be kept in place, right? The presumption is that you keep the, you keep the customary arrangements uh, in place. So at times in the 1400s, 1500s, when land became more valuable, uh, 
when it became more profitable to grow certain crops or raise certain animals, it caused enormous disruption because lords would want to take advantage of these changing market conditions by changing the rent arrangements. And that was simply not acceptable in the eyes of most people in the medieval world. Right, so custom takes priority. So these peasants, whether they were freeholders, tenants, serfs, or whatever, uh, these peasants generally aimed to maintain a certain standard of living that was fairly common among the rural folk in the medieval West. Their diet was not too bad. Uh, you know, it all depends, obviously it's all relative, it depends on what you're comparing it to, but compared to the 15 and 1600s, medieval peasants tended to have a fairly good diet with a wide range of fruits, vegetables, and animal protein, meats, eggs, uh, dairy. It was later on that a lot of these foods became a lot more expensive, like meat, and peasants were forced to cut back on them and start relying on foods like beans, for instance, as a kind of replacement protein in place of meat or dairy. Uh, in the Middle Ages, beans were considered uh, animal feed, right? They were sort of not good enough for people to eat, certainly not good enough to make a meal out of. Uh, so people, uh, they got their vitamins through, through uh, vegetables and fruits, they got protein from meat and dairy, and uh, they had plenty of alcohol. Uh, there was a lot of wine, beer, uh, an ale, which even fairly poor peasants could afford uh, from time to time. And they could maintain a reasonably good standard of living despite the fact that there was very little long-distance trade and commerce. Trade and travel were difficult and expensive, and most, most goods were produced and consumed locally in local markets. Uh, you know, food, for yourself and your immediate neighbors in your village or your parish, uh, clothing you might get from local tailors or, or even just uh, housewives, and you would make your own entertainment. People performed songs, uh, plays, did uh, acrobatics. There could also be traveling troops of performers and entertainers, but most day-to-day -day entertainment you supplied yourself and anything from far away, anything from beyond your local neighborhood, was a lot harder to get. You might sometimes get it at periodic fairs uh, that traveled around rural areas and that might come to a given parish or town a few times a year and attract people from around the immediate area. Anything more expensive, anything that certainly that came from outside Europe was uh, was pretty rare. You had to accumulate a certain amount of wealth to get a chance at anything like silks or porcelain or jade or exotic spices, uh, which occasionally did make their way to markets around the cities and towns of Europe. And the main portal by which they came in mostly was Venice. You, uh, so, so the Middle East was sort of the, the, the next region over from Europe that was, through most of the Middle Ages, was more wealthy and powerful than 
the Latin West was, and that produced a great deal of its own luxury goods and also acquired them from the rest of Asia and East Africa. These would then be traded to ports along the coastline between the Middle East and Europe, such as Constantinople, uh, Tyre, Alexandria, and trade from those cities to the Latin West almost exclusively went through Venice. And Venice was the one sort of great naval power of the Latin West. It controlled the sea lanes to Constantinople and to the Islamic Middle East. And uh, Venice was known to be sort of the the great entrepot. It was, it was, for most of the Middle Ages, it was, at least for the high and late Middle Ages, it was the second biggest city in Europe after Paris. Paris usually was the largest with maybe around 200,000 people. Venice had about 120 or 130,000 for a long time in the late Middle Ages. Uh, so by today's standards, it's barely, you know, barely a city at all. But by the standards of that time, it was uh, a tremendous maritime metropolis. It was the place of the great markets and bazaars. And it was the place where all sorts of different people could be found and came into contact with Western Christendom. You know, it's no accident that, that in the 1500s, when Shakespeare wanted to write, say, a play about a black African main character, it takes place in Venice. When he wants to write a play about a Jewish main character, it takes place in Venice. Venice was sort of the one cosmopolitan epicenter where uh, the medieval West encountered and bought from the rest of the world, really. So there was a certain amount of long-distance trade and travel in addition to local production for household and village use. But it wasn't always embraced or approved of or encouraged. Remember, the great goal and ideal of medieval societies was stability and continuity. And commerce was often seen as a threat to that and as a possible destabilizing force. Medievals didn't generally believe in continual economic growth. Right? They didn't, they didn't really have a notion of the economy. That's a very modern idea. They, they knew about production and about goods and about circulation and consumption of goods. And the ideal was to maintain a balance. Okay, so a human body was understood in the Aristotelian and Galenic medicine that was embraced in the high and late Middle Ages. A human body was understood to have four humors, and a healthy body had to keep those humors in the right balance. You had to have the right amounts of blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile sort of interacting in your body and keeping things um, balanced and stable so you could go on living. Well, again, in this sort of fractal way of thinking, that same theory was applied to society where society was like a body, okay, and goods like gold or cloth were understood to be like those fluids circulating in a body, 
and you had to have them moving and in the right balance. And if you have too much of one or too little of one, it causes disruption. Okay, so kingdoms in the Middle Ages like France or, or Flanders or Portugal didn't like suddenly having a big influx of a luxury good, like let's say silk, for instance. Well, what's the matter with that, you might ask? Well, one is that if a luxury good flooded into a society, then its price would go down. It would be easier to acquire it. And that meant that people lower down on the social scale would be able to acquire it, right? And this was a very common problem that bothered medieval people when it came to things like clothing and jewelry, is if you got too much of those luxury goods, they would lose their ability to mark social distinctions. Uh, you would have people like peasants going around wearing silks or, or copper jewels, and then you wouldn't be able to distinguish who was of what social rank. Uh, so many, especially in the late Middle Ages, as commerce and trade started to grow, a lot of late medieval kingdoms and states enacted sumptuary laws, and that means laws regulating clothing, uh, who can wear what, right? And when the problem became too bad, they would sometimes even just embargo certain goods. They would say, no more silk allowed in Flanders for the next two years. So this was seen as destabilizing and disruptive of society if the wrong amounts of commodities came in. And likewise, there was also a problem if you had too little, if there was no wine or beer, say, being produced in a region for a year or two, then the peasants wouldn't be able to afford any, and they would be unhappy. So having too little and, and people being deprived of a certain good was a problem as well. In addition, and just as importantly, commerce was seen as being morally suspect. So not only did it sort of blur or, or threaten to disrupt social distinctions, it was also seen as being, or at least threatening to be, exploitative and dishonest. Things were understood to have a fair price. Right? There were all kinds of concepts in place, and I'll talk more about them in the medieval world that, that we uh, that don't have any traction anymore in our world. But things were understood to have a certain nature built into them. And the value of a thing was tied to its nature, right? Gold is higher value than iron because gold is pure and eternal and doesn't rust the way iron does. So therefore, gold has a higher value than iron. And since everything has a value kind of attached to its, its nature and its intrinsic qualities, then everything should have a fair price, right? And this is the ideal that a lot of people like Thomas Aquinas wrote about. How do you determine and enforce the fair prices of goods? So this is totally different from the way we think about supply and demand now, that the, the price of a thing does not depend on the thing itself or, or its qualities. It depends simply on what people are willing to pay for it and how much of it there is in a given place and time. Things in the medi medieval world were understood to have a fair price. And if you were a merchant making profit, 
that meant probably that you were charging more than the fair price for things. So making a lot of profit was understood to be a sign of price gouging and uh, exploitation. Now, of course, this way of thinking about commerce wasn't necessarily universal to everybody in the Middle Ages. Certainly, there must have been merchants who didn't subscribe to this way of thinking. But we know that it was common among the church, who saw themselves as the enforcers of morality. It was common among the nobility, who didn't want uh, wealthy merchants challenging them and, and upstaging them as the proper social elite. And as for peasants, we really don't know, but there may have been a mix of opinion and differences between those who were able to buy luxury goods and those who couldn't afford it. The sort of crown jewel of this whole philosophy of commerce and of, of subjecting and regulating commerce by morality was the prohibition against usury. So in the High Middle Ages, usury was understood to be simply a sin and a very serious sin, full stop. Uh, you could not lend money and then charge interest for it. And this was strictly forbidden for all sorts of very fundamental reasons. Uh, usury, charging interest for a loan, meant that you were giving up a certain amount of money and then expecting it to grow and come back to you in greater quantity than what you lent out. Now, the question that arises is, well, what if everybody did that? You can't do that unless the amount of money and the amount of wealth in a society is constantly growing, right? So it, it assumes, it only makes sense if you assume that uh, wealth can grow in an unlimited way. If you don't assume that, then it, it implies that you're hoarding, you're taking more for yourself, you're ex and you're expecting more for yourself than what you put in. And this was very dangerous if you believed that society had to be stable and had to be, uh, had to maintain itself through time and maintain its balance, its balance of goods, its balance of wealth through the different elements of society, right? You, it, you were in a sense, taking uh, money or gold or silver or whatever it was out of the economy, out of the, the circulation in society and hoarding it for yourself. This was uh, almost like uh, comparable to like a, a cancer in a body, uh, sucking resources into itself and starving uh, the rest of the body. So, so usury was... Uh, was absolutely anathema for all sorts of reasons that fit into this understanding of society as a kind of organic living being. Okay, so as I said before, um, precedent and prerogative were the real basis for authority. Uh, and precedent and prerogative, of course, they both begin with pre. They're both uh, drawing of knowledge and position and power from the past. And over time, as especially as the population grew and towns and cities grew through the High Middle Ages, the creation of institutions to exercise 
inherited powers and authorities could grow almost ad infinitum. And you ended up with this highly, highly complex, highly institutionally articulated society with overlapping authorities and overlapping powers. An interesting illustration of this is the London Corporation, which was formed in the 11th century and technically still exists today and is still a governing institution within what's called the City of London, which is just a little district of modern-day London that was the original town back in the Middle Ages. So the London Corporation is the multi-layered organization that was formed to govern the town. The reason it exists is because William the Conqueror and his Norman supporters invaded England in 1066, as you've heard before, and they were able to conquer much of the countryside in England pretty easily after their victory at Hastings. But the town of London offered a bit more of a problem. It was compact, it was well defended, and they weren't sure if they wanted to go through the work and the risk of actually invading and conquering the town. So instead, they did something that was fairly normal in Normandy, which is they gave the town a charter. They basically said, if you accept us as your new rulers and William as the new king, then you can govern yourselves within your town walls. And so they, London accepted this charter and set up a system of self-government. Now, London already had a number of craft guilds, right? So those, those fraternal organizations that control the practice of a certain trade. Uh, there were already a number of guilds in London called livery companies, and they're still there and they're still called livery companies. So you had a, a tailor's livery company and a stonemason's livery company. And these livery companies were actually the main groupings through which people identified and operated in society if they were uh, high status enough to practice a trade. And so these livery companies, firstly, they each chose their own representatives who formed a council, and they also divided London up into geographic districts called wards, and each of these geographic districts would then also elect representatives. So, so there were actually two councils set up in the London Corporation. One is a sort of council of aldermen representing the different districts, and they make the laws and ordinances for the town, much like a modern-day city with a city council. But there was also a council of the livery companies that met in a building called Guildhall, which is, is still there, a 15th century Guildhall is still there in London. And this council of livery company representatives would then choose the executive officers, principally the mayor and the sheriff. So the executive that enforced the laws was chosen through the livery companies, but the aldermen who made the laws were chosen geographically from the wards. So, uh, and then these uh, aldermen and, and mayors and sheriffs would have to somehow uh, cooperate and get along enough to run the city. And as I said, this system is still in place. The livery companies are still there. 
the city of London and its corporation are still there, although it's a little different now because not that many people actually live in this uh, central commercial zone of London. But it has survived, and it, it survived in a sense because it followed this medieval sort of system of building on institutions that already exist, uh, in this case, the, the livery companies, and it hangs on to its legitimacy through continuity, uh, stability, and not through reference to abstract principles, right? The, the, the London Corporation doesn't exist because there's some sort of philosophical principle that someone drew up saying every town should be governed this way. Rather, the London Corporation exists because William the Conqueror made a deal. Through this personal negotiation, they created a precedent and authority was exchanged, right? The, the London Corporation, the, the town of London gave or, or legitimized the power of William as king and in turn, William legitimized the Londoners' privilege of governing themselves. And so there's this historical exchange that happened at a particular point in time, which created a precedent which has been adhered to since. And uh, many other medieval institutions have been, have been wiped away, of course. But the London Corporation, I think, is one example of how this medieval attitude that power is personal, it depends on the recognition of particular individuals as having certain powers by virtue of who they are, building institutions into larger institutions, how this can be very effective at maintaining a cohesive society uh, through time. Now, many, many larger institutions worked similarly. I mean, you can look then at, at the larger scale at, say, for example, the Holy Roman Empire, and you see the same pattern, right? The Holy Roman Empire is not simply a unitary uh, state with a single ruler who says, you know, I'm, I'm emperor because, uh, because of, you know, Hobbes' Leviathan or some doctrine like this that uh, I should be the one invested with power. Rather, the Holy Roman Emperors are elected by local rulers, right? And, and if you look at, say, Bavaria, it's a, it's a long-standing political entity unto itself, which then delegates power. The ruler of Bavaria gets to take part in electing an emperor, to sit on the imperial throne, and in return, the emperors recognize the elector of Bavaria's right to govern Bavaria internally for themselves, right? You have this complicated pyramid where different people have different powers, and at least in the case of the Holy Roman Empire, you again see power gets more tenuous as you move up the scale. In a similar way, Again, property mimicked politics and vice versa, right? The personal power to rule was understood in basically the same terms as the personal power to control a piece of land or, or a building. And if you were to pick out a specific place like, uh, like Schwabia in Germany, and ask who's in charge here, you get a very long, complicated answer. Well, you know, there's there's the Duke of Schwabia, and then there's the village with its council, and then there's the Holy Roman Emperor, and all these different people all have different powers and claims. 
over the people in this location. Likewise, if you were to take just a piece of land, like a field, and ask who owns this piece of land, you wouldn't get a clear, straightforward answer the way you would today, right? We think of property today as being unitary, right? There's a shed in a field. Somebody owns it. Some person must own it, and that means they have the exclusive right to do whatever they want with it, right? There might be also, you know, zoning laws or historical preservation laws, but those are kind of exceptions. The general baseline is some one person or institution owns a piece of property and they do whatever they want with it, period. Well, that, that concept and that practice didn't really happen in the Middle Ages. Rather, uh, if you were to take a piece of land and say, who owns it? It depends on what sort of land it is, right? So say you're talking about a tract of land in maybe Normandy that is partly forested, and then there's a stream, and then there's a field, a meadow. Well, the field or meadow, the people in the nearby village or hamlet might have control over that field, and they might have the right to graze animals in it, right? That was, that was very normal throughout uh, the medieval West, that open lands like fields or meadows were understood to be commons. And ordinary people, maybe peasants, had the right to use those commons to garden and raise animals. The stream, maybe there are fish in the stream. Well, someone else might have the right to fish in the stream. Maybe the local noble, perhaps the Duke of Normandy, has the right to, to fish there because fishing is a certain practice that is proper to particular people in particular social stations. And then when it comes to the forest, well, probably the forest is for the king because uh, the forests are where you hunt and hunting is a royal pastime. So that belongs to the king unless he gives permission in some way, whether formally or informally to somebody else to hunt in that forest. And this control over the forests because they are the hunting grounds was very serious. Uh, and people in many places could be executed for hunting without permission from the crown. It was understood to be theft from the monarch and hence a kind of treason to hunt improperly in a forest. And even simply living or going into the forest was understood to be dangerous and a sign of outlawry and, and treason. That's why, uh, you know, Robin Hood is such a transgressive, dangerous sort of figure, merely by the fact that he lives in, in the forest, right? He's, he's in, in, in essence, he's trespassing on the rights and prerogatives of the crown. So we can see here how the crown is a very important and very strange institution with a lot of tensions in it, right? They had enormous symbolic weight and enormous privileges at the same time that they didn't have much real tangible means for enforcing their will. It was very hard to support a large army. Uh, it was very hard to oppose local nobles and power centers that might have castles or fortified towns. And they also had to contend with the competing prestige and authority of the church. 
So the crown was sort of constantly in a struggle all through the Middle Ages. They had to uh, try to curb the power of nobles. Uh, They often controlled the ability to do things like crenellate, which is create uh, those battlements with a sort of zigzag pattern along the tops of a castle or fortified town because that gave you tremendous defensive uh, abilities. And so in many places, the crown actually had to curb crenellation and sometimes gave out licenses to crenellate to specific nobles that they trusted. And this was a way of trying to manage this large class of kind of basically warlord class that could always be a threat to the crown. And they had repeated clashes with the church, uh, not only over taxation and uh, land and money, I mean, all of that is to be expected, but also over symbolic power and over spiritual authority. As I said in the lecture on the early Middle Ages, kings were understood to have a kind of supernatural, otherworldly quality and power unto themselves. And we certainly know this is true with early uh, kings like uh, Clovis and the Merovingian kings in, in early France, but it also had a kind of revival in the high and late Middle Ages as well. Kings of France and England had quasi-magical practices that sort of demonstrated their connection to Uh, the heavenly world and to sort of invisible powers. Uh, And kings of France and England, beginning in definitely by the 1200s, practiced what was called the king's touch, where they would have ill people come to their courts and the king would lay hands on them and this was supposed to heal them. They probably did this with all kinds of illnesses for a while, but eventually they settled on one in particular, called uh, commonly called scrofula, which is a form of tuberculosis that causes terrible swelling in your lymph nodes. Uh, and it can look kind of like a, like a goiter, almost. Kings would touch these, these diseased lymph nodes. And the idea was that, that the king's sort of supernatural power would, would cure them. Scrofula is an illness that often goes away and heals on its own. So it, <laughs> so it could sort of seem to work. Like, oh, look, uh, the king or queen touched me, and this uh, made my disease uh, go away. This practice, as I said, it came up in both England and France in the 1200s, and it continued to be common through the 1600s and even into the early 1700s. And the, the sort of great linguist and essayist Samuel Johnson Uh, who was one of the great sort of leading lights of of British intellectual life in the late 1700s. He actually said he could remember as a small child when he had this illness, he has a vague memory of a sort of kindly large woman laying hands on his neck, and that was Queen Anne, who was one of the last British monarchs to practice uh, the king's touch. But uh, it has its roots in, in the Middle Ages. So this odd sort of practice, you know, it's, it's sort of a funny side note, but it, it shows how kings and queens wanted to maintain this sort of aura of supernatural power and authority around themselves, which naturally uh, 
greatly raised the stakes of any political or legal dispute they might have with the church, which of course claimed to be the connection between the earthly and, and heavenly worlds. A classic tragedy of the Middle Ages, which, which served as kind of a defining touchstone of this constant struggle between the crown and the church, both at the time and up to today, is Thomas Becket. So I'm not sure if I've mentioned Becket before, but, uh, but in brief, uh, Becket was a highborn courtier and servant of the crown in England in the mid-1100s. Uh, and he was a very close friend and comrade of King Henry II. And uh, Henry II was known to be a sort of loud, uh, flamboyant, carousing sort of king. Uh, he liked partying and uh, whoring and going off to war. And Becket was uh, a sort of buddy of his who was a close friend who took part in this life and also acted as a diplomat and a treasurer and was, uh, you know, a real power behind the throne in Henry II's England. Henry in, was pulled into a conflict with the church over the question of who had the authority to try and punish members of the clergy who were accused of crimes. So everyone knew that clergymen often, uh, you know, went wild. Uh, they would steal, they would embezzle, they would sometimes, uh, you know, rape uh, or get into fights. Uh, they committed the whole range of crimes. This was just a known fact in the Middle Ages. And in general, these uh, priests and monks would be tried by church courts. The church courts could be very lenient. You know, this is a pattern you see with the church, that they have a lot of rules, but they tend to be pretty lenient in enforcing them. And so people could get off with light punishments, uh, penances, get assigned to another parish, uh, and, so, uh, and so it would go on. The king and many of his subjects got fed up with this, and the king began to insist that clergy in England were subjects of the crown and they should be tried in royal courts, according to the common law. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who was the supreme head of the church within England, uh, of course objected to this and maintained the church's prerogative that they, you know, as the first estate, had the right to, to punish or not punish clergymen as they saw fit, and that they were higher than the authority of the crown. This dispute goes on for several years until the archbishop dies. You know, archbishops tend to be old guys. They die frequently. So the office of the archbishop of Canterbury is now empty. And Henry comes up with a solution. He appoints Thomas Becket to take his place. And Becket, of course, is totally shocked and reluctant to do it. He's not even a priest. Uh, but the king persuades him. Uh, he has him sort of fast-tracked, ordained as a priest, and then installed as Archbishop of Canterbury. And once uh, Becket is, is invested in this position, he then promptly takes up the church's position in the dispute and maintains that the church is higher than the crown and that they must have the authority to try their own 
clergy are not subject to royal courts. So obviously this is not what Henry was hoping for at all, and he is shocked and flabbergasted. Why would his friend, who has been so loyal to him, suddenly uh, betray him and oppose his, uh, his, in his view, totally justified move to subject the clergy to the common law? So Becket, as archbishop, sort of retreats into an almost monastic sort of life. He does all kinds of penances himself, wearing hair shirts and fasting, and he generally refuses to talk to the king, except on a few occasions where they have meetings with very managed negotiations. And at moments, it seems like Becket maybe will give in or compromise, but then he always retreats back and takes a hard line again and says, no, the church will absolutely not accede to any of these royal demands. Henry, as is consistent with his personality, becomes more and more agitated and furious, and uh, at some point at, is at his royal court with knights all around him, and he's complaining about Becket, and he cries out, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? And so three knights of his court take this as an indication, and they sneak out and ride down to Canterbury, go into the cathedral, find Becket there at prayer, and kill him by decapitation. So these three knights have just killed the highest church authority and ex officio the most holy person in Britain while at prayer in a, in a church. And they claim that they're doing so on the king's request. So this is a huge political embarrassment for the king on all sides. And the king uh, basically confesses to being partly responsible for the murder of Becket. And he is compelled to make very elaborate penances. He goes on a pilgrimage to Canterbury to the burial place, the tomb of the archbishop and does elaborate penances, has himself whipped and so forth in front of the tomb to show his contrition for his part in the murder of the archbishop and, and his friend. Becket soon after is declared a martyr of the church and then canonized as a saint. And his tomb becomes a pilgrimage site. So people from all over England and even from other kingdoms begin to uh, walk to go on journeys to Canterbury, to go to the tomb and to perform ritual penances like the king had done, uh, you know, crawling, uh, abnegating yourself uh, before touching the tomb. And this was believed to be a very holy act to make this pilgrimage and uh, to have certain healing powers. And it became very popular in the late 1100s and 1200s. And this is why even still today, Canterbury is a major uh, pilgrimage site uh, in Europe. So Becket became this kind of iconic, almost superhero of the medieval world, but not only because he was a martyr of the church, but also because he's understood to represent this kind of classic conflict between loyalties, okay? Conflicting loyalties, conflicting authorities. Who am I? Am I a subject of the crown? Am I a servant of the church? What is the higher loyalty? And am I 
essentially a friend and a political ally. Is that my highest loyalty? Uh, you know, Beckett sort of dramatizes this tragedy of conflicting and overlapping authorities that was so constant and so ubiquitous through the Middle Ages. And that's why I think people in the high and late Middle Ages turned with such passion to Beckett and his story as, as a kind of explanation of, of life, really. So, uh, so the, the pilgrimage practice to Canterbury is, is a great example and a great representation of how people tried to make order, how people used certain practices to, uh, to make sense of this really complicated world of, of, of conflict and, and ambiguity. And on the more intellectual level, likewise, people fit their own lives into uh, what was called the great chain of being. And I, I talked about this a little bit in the lecture on, uh, on knowledge and ignorance in the Middle Ages. But uh, the great chain of being is a sort of cobbled together attempt at a comprehensive explanation of the world, which drew on the classics, it drew on the Bible, and uh, it drew on Germanic uh, mythology. Uh, so again, this fusion of Roman, Christian, and Germanic elements into this kind of world picture, which in line with Aristotle's thinking was teleological, right? So the medievals understood the world to be teleological. Everything has its nature and written into its nature is a purpose, right? An acorn uh, is destined to grow into a, uh, an oak tree, right? And if it does so, it is fulfilling its telos. If it doesn't, then it's somehow failing. It's being turned away from its purpose, from its telos, right? And the teleological way of seeing the world is different from, it stands in contrast to our more mechanistic way of viewing the world, right? So if you, if you embrace the sort of Newtonian science explanation of the world and take it to its extreme, then you see the world as a sort of machine where one thing, one cause always prompts an effect, like gears moving in a machine, as opposed to things do what they do because they're moving towards some end, right? In a mechanistic view of the world, causes are always prior. They're in the past. They're what happened before. In the teleological view of the world, causes are what is yet to come, the purpose that you're looking towards, right? And so you can, you can summarize this with the question, uh, I like to say with the question, why does the millstone turn, right? So, you know, in, in, in a mill that's driven by, say, a water wheel, Inside, you have a millstone, a big circular stone that turns, and you place your grain underneath it, and that grinds the grain down to, to flour. So when you look at a mill and you ask, why does the millstone turn? There are two different ways of answering that question, and they're both valid ways of answering it, but they're completely different. One is, you say, why does the millstone turn? Because there's water in the water wheel, and the weight of the water turns the wheel, and that turns an axle, and that axle, by a series of gears, turns the millstone, right? So it's the force starting from the water, pushing these various gears one to another to another until you end up with a turning millstone, right? That's the mechanistic way of looking at it. 
Another way of answering the question, why does the millstone turn, is to say, in order to grind the grain, right? It's fulfilling, that is the purpose for which it was placed there. That's why it turns. So these are uh, two different ways of, of looking at the world, and I won't get into all the implications of these different ways of looking at the world, but, but just suffice it to say that this teleological way of thinking is written into the idea of the great chain of being, where you have uh, all things that you can see, uh, you know, God, angels, people, living organisms, buildings, houses, clouds, whatever, all of them fit into a sort of grand hierarchy. You have uh, the higher beings, God and the angels, that plan and envision and govern the world. Uh, then you have, below that, you have human beings who can think and reason and act and choose. And then below that, you have animals uh, that have sort of semblances of thinking or reacting. Then you have vegetative creatures, plants and, and fungi that seem to have some sort of life in them, but they don't think, they don't plan, they don't choose. And then below that, you have stones and the earth. And everything fulfills its role, and everything naturally moves towards its proper place in the chain, right? That's why, uh, like I've, I've said before, if you drop a stone in a pond, it's going to sink, because stone is lower than water in the great chain of being. And that's why birds fly, but mice do not, right? Uh, everything... Almost any phenomenon you point to can somehow be accounted for by how a given substance or object fits into its proper place in, in this great chain. They were geocentric, so they believed that the Earth was at the center of the universe. They did not believe that the Earth was at the center of the universe because the Earth is better. It's because the Earth is more base, it's lower. Right? And so the baser, lower sorts of materials settle downward and end up at the center. Whereas if you look up, you see more perfect celestial beings that are higher in the great chain of being. You see planets and stars, and then beyond them, in some sort of conceptual, inconceivable, ineffable way, beyond all of this is God. Right? So this is the cosmos people imagine themselves fitting into. And the people themselves also fit into uh, a special sort of uh, organism within the great chain of being. So people saw themselves, as I said before, as belonging to a kind of larger body uh, with circulating blood and humors and, and limbs. And in this way, it's very similar. It's reminiscent of the ancient... Hindu myth that you see in the Vedas, which says that uh, society is divided into four varnas, or, or orders of society, the, the Brahmins, the priestly class, the Kshatriya, which are the warrior class, the Vaishya are the artisan class, and the Shudra are the peasant class, or, or laborer class. And these four orders exist because there was a kind of original cosmic man whose body was divided up, and he, he, it was torn apart and his head became the Brahmins and his 
let's see, do I have this right? The torso became the kshatriya, the arms became the vaishya, and the legs became the shudra. So the different segments of society fit into this sort of cosmic body, this sort of superhuman body. Well, medieval Europeans thought in kind of similar ways uh, that the, the different orders of society fit into uh, a body and each part had to perform its different function. And you can see this, this sort of view of the world being crystallized in, for example, in the writings of uh, of Marie de France, who was uh, a poet who wrote uh, fables and epics in the 12th century, probably at the court uh, of Henry II. Uh, and she wrote in the French of her time. She probably also knew some English as well as Latin. Uh, and she wrote this fable of a man, his belly, and his limbs, based loosely on some ancient classical sources but put into the kind of language and ideas of, of the Middle Ages. Uh, so I'll read you this English translation of this fable by Marie de France. Of a man I wish to tell, as an example to remember. Of his hands and of his feet and of his head, they were angry towards the belly that he carried, about their earnings that it ate. Then they would not work any more, and they deprived it of its food. But when the belly fasted, they were quickly weakened. Hands and feet had no strength to work now as they were accustomed. Food and drink they offered the belly, but they had starved it too long. It did not have the strength to eat. The belly dwindled down to nothing, and the hands and feet went too. From this example, one can see what every free person ought to know. No one can have honor who brings shame to his lord nor can his lord have it either if he wishes to shame his people. If either one fails the other, evil befalls them both. So there's a lot very pithily packed into this little fable by Marie de France. But you can see here, she's imagining first a man where the belly has the role of taking in nourishment, right? And the hands and feet comically uh, resent this and sort of go on strike, refusing to feed the belly anymore. Well, the obvious problem with this is that all these parts of the body are organically connected, and each one has to fulfill its role. The hands and feet can't be strong and healthy unless they're getting food into the belly. And this is a metaphor also now for the relationship between the social classes. You know, a, a free person, meaning a commoner, and his lord have to have this cooperative relationship where the lord gets more. But by getting more, he brings honor also to his subordinates, right? So the norm, the ethic in medieval society was that you shouldn't accumulate wealth, right? That was, that was seen as a bad thing. That was seen as greedy and disruptive of the social order to accumulate wealth for yourself. If you manage to acquire wealth, then you should spend it and hence keep the goods and the money in circulation. So if you were, say, a wealthy lord who had managed to gather a certain amount of wealth, then it was expected that you should throw feasts or give money away to charity, put on festivities, uh, employ a lot of servants, buy a lot of 
clothes, wine, whatever, so that that wealth that had come into you flowed back out to others. Right? That was the expectation. And likewise, with social prestige or honor, as they called it, and as, as Marie de France says in that, in that fable, if you were obedient to a lord and helped them gain power, standing, wealth, then that reflected back on you. That, in turn, gave you higher status. It, it, the honor circulated back to you, right? And honor is basically the, the good standing, the uh, prestige, the good reputation that should accord to you if you fulfilled your social role correctly, right? If you fulfill your role as a peasant or a head of household or as a tailor or a blacksmith or as a knight or a, a, a priest or whatever your role was, if you performed it creditably, then you received honor. And that honor flowed to others who had social relationships with you. So if, so your, your prestige in the world didn't simply depend on your individual actions, though, you know, if you were a heroic knight or a great builder or something like that, certainly that, uh, that gave you a certain amount of honor, but also it came from your social place in the world. You were defined by your social relationships. I am a squire to such and such knight, and that gives me honor. I am a tenant or a servant of such and such noble lord, and my honor is attached to that relationship, right? So, so honor was understood to, to flow and radiate between people, and, and your identity was built on your place in society, your place in institutions and relationships. It was not built on your individual characteristics. Now, I said, so as I said, the, the society was understood as a body, but also just as significantly, it was, it was also described as a tree, the social tree, right? So if you imagine in the great chain of being, which extends from the heavens down into the earth, a tree is this, uh, this living being that grows from the earth upwards towards the heavens, and so sort of suspends itself in this kind of in-between realm. Well, society was understood that way. Human society was neither entirely earthbound, nor was it divine or heavenly. It sort of grew and flourished in the space in between, and people formed members of this tree, right? So the word member originally means uh, an extension of a body, like a finger or a leg or a branch of a tree. And people were extensions of this larger social body. And just as the tree uh, grew upward and had these different levels of canopies, so there were the different orders of society, right? So the lower parts of the tree and the roots were the commoners, right? The peasants and, and artisans and laborers. Then the next order above that uh, is the second estate, which is the nobility. And then the first estate at the top of the tree, of course, was the, the church. So uh, this sort of myth of the social tree, again, it's like the social body, but it also draws on these very ancient Indo-European myths of uh, the cosmic tree, 
you know, Yggdrasil is the world tree in Norse mythology, this idea that uh, the tree represents the sort of axis of the universe, connecting uh, high and low. This is uh, a metaphor that you see all the time, especially in late medieval writings. You'll see in prayer books or histories, you'll see illustrations of, uh, of the social tree with the different classes arranged around it. And uh, a traditional medieval social tree would put the king or monarch in the middle, not at the top, because he belonged to the noble class, basically. He belonged to the second estate. The, the first estate on top is the clergy, and, uh, and front and center normally would be, would be the pope, right? Very interestingly, I'll maybe talk about this again in a later lecture, this picture starts to shift around a bit in the 1500s when people like uh, Edmund Dudley in England, uh, who writes The Tree of Commonwealth, they begin to put the king at the top or even above and outside the tree, right? So they begin to imagine there's this social tree of all these interacting balanced parts and then the crown kind of hovers above it, uh, regulating the whole thing from outside. Whereas in the medieval view of the world, the king is right there in the tree, right? Everybody is part of it and everyone has their place uh, according to their, their role. What unified the tree or the body in practice was not simply the exercise of power or laws, but it was rituals. Firstly, the sacraments of the church, right? So the, in the 1200s, the sacraments of the church were regularized. There were seven of them. And the most important ones were baptism, where you entered into the church, and uh, the Eucharist, where you actually uh, eat a piece of bread that, according to the teachings of the medieval church, was actually the body of Christ, right? So everyone, by partaking in the Eucharist, is actually taking some of the body of Christ into themselves. And hence, they are actually physically uh, bound together into one flesh, right? And beginning in the 1300s, a new festival was created that came to be observed all around Western Christendom called uh, Corpus Christi, where people would, uh, in a, a village or a parish or a city, would organize themselves into little companies, right? So maybe each clan or family, each guild, uh, each ward might put together a little uh, company of people, almost like a float in a modern-day parade, and they would process together down the streets and down the roads, carrying the consecrated Eucharistic host, right? So carrying the piece of bread that had been consecrated and hence was the body of Christ. And this grand procession in which all the different guilds would all have their, their companies and the different uh, clans and the different confraternities would all be represented, it was dramatizing the kind of organic unity of the whole society that in a sense was all subsumed together into one body, the body of Christ, that uh, like Christ risen from the dead was eternal, uh, continually renewing itself. Okay, and lastly I'll, I'll say uh, I've talked before about, uh, about the sacrament 
of reconciliation, which is what you do when you have done something wrong and hence are cast out of the church or even uh, excommunicated. If you were important enough for the Pope to notice you, uh, you know, you could actually be officially excommunicated, cast out of communion of this sort of sanctified body. Reconciliation is what you did. You confessed, you received absolution, you performed penances in order to be ready to take the Eucharist again and be accepted back into the body of the church. Uh, and one of the penances that was very common, as I said before, was pilgrimage. Uh, you know, the Crusades were one form of pilgrimage. They were armed pilgrimage. I mentioned the pilgrimages to Canterbury. So these uh, pilgrimages were journeys where you might meet all sorts of different people, see all sorts of different sites, and in the process, it became possible to reintegrate yourself into this body. So there was the sort of constant cycle of re-entering uh, the, the social body, the body of the church, the body of society over and over again. So in this way, people, through their actions, through, uh, through rituals, through food, through journeying, uh, were always acting out and dramatizing their membership or their re-entry into this uh, social body. And in this sort of world, mental and social world that people live in, was sort of the background of, uh, of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, right? So the Canterbury Tales, as you might know, are a collection of stories that supposedly were told by, uh, by a group of pilgrims who were entertaining each other, right, making their own entertainment, by telling tales as they journeyed down to Canterbury. And in many ways, I think the Canterbury Tales are a kind of attempt to present an all-encompassing picture of this world as Chaucer saw it. So he wrote these in the late 1300s, probably all in the 1390s, at a time when he was a sort of minor royal official, a kind of minor royal tax and toll collector living in an apartment in the town walls of London over one of the gates where pilgrims would regularly journey out of the city to go down on the road to Canterbury and come back. So he saw this sort of constant movement and flow of people in and out of the town and, and back and forth to this holy site uh, in Canterbury. And it was, uh, and he imagined these people that he saw telling these these different stories. And the book begins, though, first with a prologue. And I'm going to uh, read the prologue uh, in the in, in Middle English as it, you know, as close as the as I can be to the correct pronunciation in the original Middle English. So you can see how it sounds as, as Chaucer wrote it. And then I'll I'll read uh, a modern translation. So it begins, Juan that April, with his sure sota, the drought of March hath persed to the rota, and bathed every vine in sweet liqueur, of which vertu engendred is the fleur. 
Juan Zephyrus eke with his sweater breath, in spirit hath in every holt and heath the tondra cropus, and the younger son hath in the ram his half cosirona, and smaller foolish mocking melodia that sleep in all the nicht with open ear, so pricketh him natura in her courages. Then, longen folk to go on, on pilgrimages, and palmeras forsaken strangers strondas to ferna hallways coth in sondre londas, and specially from every sheerest end of Engoland to Canterbury thy wender, the holy blissful martyr for to seca, that hem hath holpen one that thy forsaker. So, uh, a modern translation of this reads with it with a few little emendations. Uh, when April, with his showers sweet with fruit, the drought of March has pierced unto the root, and bathed each vein with liquor that has power to generate therein and sire the flower. When the west wind also has with his sweet breath quickened again in every wood and heath the tender shoots and buds and the young sun into aries one half his course has run and many little birds make melody that sleep through all the night with open eye so nature pricks them on to ramp and rage then do folk long to go on pilgrimage and palmers to go seeking out strange strands to distant shrines well known in sundry lands, and especially from every shire's end of England, to Canterbury thy wend, the holy blessed martyr there to seek, who helped them when they lay so ill and weak. So you see here this almost cosmic complete picture of the world where Chaucer is trying to set uh, these stories. And he starts out with the spring, right? The time of awakening and new life. And he talks, he, he points first to the rain showers, right? Coming down from the air, from the heavens, down into the ground, piercing to the root and stimulating the living beings, right? Beginning with the plants, Right, the, the, the vines, the flowers, with the, this new life, this new fluid running into their veins, like, uh, like blood running into the veins of a person awakening. Uh, and then the wind, uh, the air going into the woods, into the crops, uh, the sun moving in the sky, so we're moving you know, back up from earth to air to sky, uh, the birds in the air and the sky uh, awakening, reproducing, filling up with the energy of life, and then finally the human beings, right? People awakening in the spring and setting out on the roads like the water running uh, through the roots of the plants, like blood running through the veins of a body. These people set out on the roads, all heading towards one sort of beating heart, which is Canterbury, right? And Canterbury is the holy site where the body, the, uh, the remains of this martyr, are held that have this special healing power, right? Moving out onto the roads and journeying to this holy site where this martyr uh, died heals illnesses, right? It, it completes and heals and rebalances the body, just like the people moving through the kingdom 
balance uh, the, the, the greater social body, which fits into this greater kind of living cosmic world of air and sky and earth. Okay, so this is, I think, you know, a, a powerful kind of pithy portrayal of what could almost seem like a, a coherent world uh, that Chaucer is trying to encapsulate. When he wrote the Canterbury Tales in the late 1300s, the, the cult of Thomas Becket and the practice of pilgrimage to Canterbury was actually already starting to decline. It was already a bit less popular than it had been earlier in, in the 1200s. And this kind of view of the world that arguably was embodied in these pilgrimages to Canterbury was already a little bit shaky by 1400 or so. And it would come under severe strain and eventually attack later in the 14 and 1500s. And you can see in, in great, uh, other great literary masterpieces from later on, like Don Quixote, you can see this awareness that the, the old world in which people were defined by the honor of their social role and fit themselves into this kind of living, larger social organism was already uh, past. So this, this way of viewing the world, which crystallized so beautifully in, in, in Chaucer, would not, would not last. And probably a lot of you can already tell a lot of the reasons and a lot of the ways that this worldview would break down in the modern era. But I'm not going to get into those now. Uh, I'll probably get to them later when I talk about uh, becoming modern and the origins of the modern world. So if you want to hear about that or other subjects, uh, keep listening. And uh, if you have questions or topics you want me to address, please uh, email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or comment on SoundCloud. And if you can help keep these lectures coming, please look at my uh, Patreon page, also under Historian's Blame. Thank you.